All right, perfect. Um, so just very briefly, we're going to talk about where we've been the last few weeks as a quick reminder. So we talked uh, early on about the two realities, the, the physical world and the spiritual world that God made from the beginning. We talked about Elohim being not just God, but also a race of spiritual beings. We talked about God's design for the spiritual world and the, and the physical world to overlap in places like Eden and ultimately in Jesus and in humanity. And we talked about what went wrong, that there were dual rebellions requiring a dual king, a human and spiritual. Uh, and then we talked a little bit the following week about um, the spiritual beings that stayed faithful to God, the divine council, the cherubim, the angels, and then the angel of Yahweh. And then last week, we got into the unfaithful Elohim, the Satan demons, and we talked a little bit more about rebellions and what those look like. Uh, tonight, our goal, um, no, let me pause there for a second. Anything left over from those previous weeks that we needed to unpack, we didn't get to, or questions that have been ruminating for you about demons or Satan or whatever since last week that you want to bring up before we go further? Okay, fantastic. We're going to keep going. So tonight, our focus is on uh, Jesus and the new humanity. And we're going to talk about um, four big ideas. We're going to spend most of our time on that last one. So we'll talk a little bit about God's design for humanity, uh, how Jesus fulfills that. Jesus' invitation to his disciples to be part of this new world and you know, humanity, and then how we do it, what it looks like for us to be engaged in this spiritual work. So um, as always, I am deeply indebted to the Bible Project, and I have one last Bible Project video to share with you uh, to get us started tonight about this topic of Jesus and the new humanity. Oh, nope, but you know what? I got I to gotta unshrink it. Hang on. Let's try this now. In the story of the Bible, there are two realms, the earth, where we live, and the heavens, where God lives. And we've been talking here about spiritual beings, the Elohim, the divine council, angels and cherubim, the Satan and demons. And the last character we want to focus on is humanity. Now, humans aren't spiritual beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, they're made of the dirt, like the animals. But notice that God calls humans to become something more. He elevates them to live and rule in Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. And they're invited to eat from the tree of life. And what does that mean, to eat the tree of life? Well, it's an image of receiving God's own eternal life into yourself. It's about a whole new kind of existence. So wait, physical beings living forever. How could that even work? Well, somehow, sharing in God's life transforms our bodies so that we can inhabit heaven and earth at the same time. And it also transforms our imagination so that we learn how to rule the world like God in the power of love. This is an amazing calling, but humanity is quickly deceived by a spiritual rebel. Yes, he lies to the humans, saying that they can rule and get eternal life on their own terms. And God exiles all of them from the dark. They're cut off from the source of life. Evil and death now have power over us, and we live in a world of fear, self-preservation, but God promises that one day a human will come to defeat evil and death at their source and to open up a new way to a reunited heaven and earth. And this promise reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. Right, when we're introduced to Jesus, he's a human, but he's also way more. 
Yeah, we're told that in Jesus, God and humanity have become one so that he can restore the rest of humanity to its lost calm. And Jesus was tested by that same deceptive spiritual being, not in the garden, but out in the wilderness. Yeah, it tells Jesus the same lie. You could rule the whole world right now if you come under my authority and do things my way. But Jesus knew that that lie leads to death. So he rejected it and was victorious over the spiritual power of evil. And so then Jesus started announcing that God's heavenly rule was arriving here on earth through him. And so he went around confronting the power of death in his Jesus was opening the way back to eternal life, to rule with God and become new humans. Yes, he also confronted our imaginations by teaching how corrupt spiritual powers enslave whole communities with their lies. Lies like, my tribe is superior to your tribe. But Jesus said every human is an image of God. Or the lie that power comes through force. While Jesus taught that real power requires sacrifice and generosity. Or the lie that peace comes through violence. While he said that true peace comes through self-giving love. This is a new kind of humanity. Yeah, a humanity transformed by God's life and his love. And Jesus didn't just talk about these ideals. He lived them out. Yeah, exactly. He brought God's heavenly kingdom to Jerusalem to confront the powers. In fact, that's what got him arrested. Well, so maybe the way of Jesus can't win over you. But from Jesus' point of view, his coming death was actually a battle. A battle? Yeah, not against humans, but against the real enemy. The spiritual powers that enslave us through their lives. Jesus gave his life and let evil do its worst. But God's love has the power to create life even out of death. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason Jesus is human, but a new kind. Yeah, when Jesus' followers met him alive from the dead, he had a transformed body that could live in heaven and earth at the same time. He's like a new category of human, one that can live and rule with God forever. Jesus is the new humanity that we're called to become. Right. He said that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And then he sent out his followers to announce that his eternal life is available to us now, in the present. We can experience eternal life now. Well, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing this God of love, so that our imaginations can be transformed as we're liberated to love God and love him. And we trust that even if we die, God's love will transform our bodies and raise us up into the new creation. And that's how the story of the Bible ends. Yeah, the ending is a new beginning, with Jesus and the new humanity ruling in a united heaven and earth together. Okay, uh, so I want to uh, unpack that a little bit, and we're going to talk first about before Jesus, what God's design was for humanity. And, and maybe you heard this a little bit in the video, but we've talked about this before, right? That that God's intention early on was that humanity would be the place where the two worlds he created, the spiritual world and the physical world, kind of came together, right? Uh, in Eden, which is the overlapping space, right? Uh, and so um, we get this language in Genesis chapter 2, and um, we hear about two trees. What are the two trees in, that are particularly significant? Anybody remember those? Tree of life and tree of wisdom or knowledge of good and evil, right. Um, so those two trees are, are really important. 
because they represent two different ways of being um, like God. Okay, so the, the tree of life was the way God wanted us to be like him. Uh, and, and that was, as our video, I thought, so eloquently put it, it, it was a way of making our physical cells more than physical. How, how can flesh and blood live forever, right? Eventually we get old and we die, um, but not necessarily, right? God had a way for us to be with him forever. Um, there was an alternative to that, and that was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was um, our attempt to be like God, to do exactly what he was giving us freely, but do it on our own terms. So this is the irony of the garden, right? It's not like there's one choice to be like God and one choice to not be like God. There are two choices to be like God. And the question is, will you pick the choice that God wants you to pick or the choice that you think you can do without him, right? Uh, and unfortunately, you know the story, our ancestors picked the one without him. Um, th there is another part of this story, however, it doesn't um, just sort of end with the sadness of, of our people getting, our ancestors getting kicked out of God's presence. There's this one line that's really important in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where God is cursing the serpent. We read this last week because we talked about um, how the serpent um, ended up becoming a crawling instead of a flying serpent. Um, but there's a line in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So uh, this verse suggests that at some point in the future, the children of humanity will, will be in conflict with the serpent, right? Be in conflict with the spiritual forces of evil. And, and so as we read through the rest of the book of Genesis and then Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament, we get offspring of humans who are um, raised up by God to be in conflict with evil. Right, so Abraham is designed to be the source of blessing for all nations, right? Or, um, you know, Ruth is this incredible symbol of faithfulness and hope that makes a future for her whole kingdom and ultimately for the Messiah, right? There are all these figures who are um, kind of foreshadowing one figure, right? And of course, the one figure is Jesus. And, and many authors have come back, including St. Paul, and read this passage and say, it doesn't say offsprings, but offspring singular, right? That there is one coming that will ultimately be born of humans and defeat the serpent, okay? So the, the, the story of scripture becomes, in one way of reading it, um, the story of, of God trying to get humanity um, to be back on board with his project of being like him the way he wants us to be like him and fighting back against the voice of the enemy, which is telling us to be like God in the way that Satan wants to be like God. Right? And the way we become God-like is really important. Okay, and we're going to come back to this idea because Jesus is going to show us um, that it's not just what we do, but how we do it that makes us in the image of God or... Um, um, you know, God-like, okay? All right, so far so good? Okay, um, so I, I want to talk uh, about Jesus for a little while, because Jesus is kind of a big deal, um, and, and, and Jesus really is the solution to the problem of the whole Bible, right? Uh, and so um, we, we know this, but it, it, it bears repeating. 
I actually just had a, a meeting with one of our middle school students who did this awesome project. And in it, he had to write about the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. And, and it's so critical for us that we maintain that, that uh, dichotomy in our heads, right? That, that Jesus, for me, it's easy to emphasize the divinity of Christ, right? I, I have no problem remembering that he was, you know, able to raise the dead and conquer evil and all that stuff. But I sometimes have a hard time really wrapping my head around the idea that Jesus was as human as I am, right? That, that there were times where he was in middle school and he was embarrassed because a girl laughed at him, right? And that there were times where, you know, I don't know, he really had to use the bathroom and he couldn't find one. I mean, like all of that human stuff, right? Jesus has gone through all of that. Um, but it's critical for us, right? Because the, the promise of scripture is that one day someone will come from humanity to show us what humanity was supposed to be like from the beginning uh, and, and to offer back to God on humanity's behalf what we owe him, right? Which is obedience and faithfulness. So Jesus is both. He's fully human, fully God. Um, he's, he, he is the only one who ever really could fully restore what was broken. Um, and so we see Jesus go about that process in his ministry. So we talked about, um, the video talked about briefly, the, the experience of Jesus in the wilderness, right? So we all remember this story, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that right after his baptism, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he's tempted for um, how long? 40 days. Um, and, and Satan appears to him, and he offers him, in Matthew and Luke, we're told specifically what Satan offers him. First, he says, if you're hungry, make the stones into bread. Then he says, uh, well, the order is different in Matthew and Luke, but, but then he says, go up onto this temple and throw yourself off and the angels will catch you as you fall so you won't be hurt. And then he says, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And in every one of those moments, right, Jesus responds exactly the right way. And, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but it, it matters how he responds. But the effect of his response is um, that he does what Adam and Eve should have done. Right? He hears the lie. Here's a different way to be God or be like God. And he says, no, I don't want to be like God that way. I want to be like God in the way that he has designed me to be like him. Right? I'm picking the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there's a wonderful um, epic poem by John Milton called Paradise Lost, which is all about the, the fall from grace of Adam and Eve. And then he wrote a much less read poem called Paradise Regained, about this moment of Jesus in the wilderness. And his point and the point of the church for centuries is that those two stories are designed to be read in parallel, right? That, that when this experience of the wilderness happens with Jesus, Jesus is undoing the mistakes of the garden, okay? So first Jesus beats Satan uh, and then he beats the demons, right? And, and we read several stories about this last week, but throughout his ministry, Jesus is constantly running into demons and people and casting them out. And we talked about oppression and we talked about possession. Um, but again and again, Jesus runs into people who have spiritual knowledge beyond humanity, right? They recognize him and his, and his divinity, which, which the humans aren't doing, right? Because they're not human, they're, they're demon possessed. Uh, and Jesus drives them out. And, and it's a central part of his ministry. We don't really like to talk about it as much, but boy, it shows up a lot in the Bible. And Jesus also, and particularly at the end of his ministry, as our video mentions, he confronts the political power structures of Rome and of the Jewish religious leadership. 
right? And we're going to get into that in a minute. But, you know, he, he quite literally says, I am a king, right? And they say, well, we're going to kill you if you're a king because you're a threat to us. And Jesus says, well, you don't fully understand it, but I am, I am a threat to you, right? My kingdom's not of this world, um, but it's going to last longer than yours is. Uh, so in all of those places, Jesus um, confronts the spiritual forces of evil. Um, the way he does it matters. So um, think back to the story of Jesus in the, in the wilderness. How does he beat Satan? What does he do? Does he throw like lightning bolts at him and smite him? That's how I would have done it. Okay. Fantastic. So he, he quotes scripture, right? So all Jesus does when Satan shows up and says, hey, do all this stuff, is he quotes scripture back at him. Right? Really interesting. I mean, because Jesus could say, Satan, you no longer exist. And then Satan would cease to exist, right? Because he's God. Jesus could have said, here's what a lightning bolt feels like. But he didn't do any of that stuff, right? The way he fights matters a lot. How does he fight the demons when he runs into a demon in um, any of those stories we read? Does he throw lightning bolts? What does he do, Shirley? He just says, go away, right? And they do. Occasionally, he says, like, go away into those pigs. But usually, he just says, go, and they go. Um, no right hook, no left hook, no roundhouse kick, right? Just, just get out of here. Um, how does he fight? Well, we'll get to this. How does he fight the political power structures of Rome and the Jewish religious leadership? Does he raise up an army and overthrow them? He does not. He dies, right? I mean, ultimately, he dies. Uh, Jesus sees this, all of this, um, the way that he fights as almost as important as the fight he's fighting, right? And this is the beautiful point that our, our video is trying to make about the imagination, right? Jesus is trying to teach us, it's not just that you have to oppose evil. The way you oppose evil matters, right? You can't use the enemy's methods to beat the enemy, right? Just like Satan cannot drive out Satan, right? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So you gotta use Jesus's methods to defeat evil. His methods are very different than, than you know, lightning bolts and warfare. We're, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Um, I, I'm not going to read all this, but I just want you to realize that Jesus sees his death and resurrection as his final battle against those spiritual forces, right? So he says this in John chapter 12. He says, um, you know, this is the point where the ruler of this world will be driven out when I am raised up on a cross. Or uh, in Luke chapter 22, as he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I have been in the temple courts this whole time. You could have arrested me then, but now is your time, and now is the time of the power of darkness, right? So he realizes that, that this final conflict is the final conflict between uh, himself and the powers of darkness, the spiritual powers of darkness. And so we've talked about this before, um, but one of the really critical ways we understand what Jesus did for us is what we often call Christus Victor theory, right? The, the idea that he didn't just take our place and absorb our sin. He also defeated the powers of evil. So Paul says this, uh, I think, in the, the most eloquent and simple way in Colossians. He says, in speaking of God the Father, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. We're going to see in verse 20, he says, through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, and then uh, in chapter 2, verse 15, um, just this one verse, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. Okay, so the cross is his ultimate victory over the powers of evil and death. And in the cross, they do their worst and they fail. And in the resurrection, um, we realize they have lost, right? They no longer have the power to condemn us because Christ has overcome their power. He's defeated darkness and death and Satan and the demons and all of it. Um, again, the way Jesus does this matters a lot, right? So Jesus doesn't win the battle um, by yelling and screaming, right? He wins the battle by self-sacrifice, by, by giving up his life that we can live. Uh, and so when we, um, in a little bit, talk about how we're going to carry on the work of Christ, right? We're going to have to do it like Jesus does it, right? We're gonna we're gonna fight evil the way Jesus fights evil, not the way you know James Bond fights evil. Okay. All right. So far, so good. Questions, comments? Okay, I'm gonna keep going. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the invitation Jesus makes, uh, and and um, how he invites us to be part of this spiritual victory and battle that he's engaged in. We've used before um, the C.S. Lewis's metaphor of sort of the cross as D-Day, right? I think that's a helpful idea that um, all at the cross, Jesus and his father and the spirit forever break the back of Satan and the powers of evil in our world. But the battle is, the battle is won, but the war isn't yet over, right? Uh, as in D-Day, you know, after D-Day, there was really no hope that the Nazis could stop the Allies. The, the, the ship had sailed, but there were some pretty major things yet to be done in that war, right? So um, uh, Jesus, um, ha having won that victory, um, has, has made it possible for us to be this new kingdom, this new humanity, as it was, uh, kind of as it was originally designed in the garden, right? So remember that video, they eat the fruit, they turn blue. Uh, the question has always been, how can we be physical beings and live forever? How can we be physical beings and ever see God who's a spiritual being? How can we be in relationship with God and in his presence if we're made up of atoms and molecules? And, and so um, the new answer in Christ is, um, that when we die and are resurrected, when Christ returns, we get a new body, right? And Paul talks about this as a spiritual body. And, and that's sort of an oxymoron, right? Like living sacrifice. You can't have a spiritual body, um, but we're going to get one. We're going to get this thing uh, that allows us to still be us, still be human, still be physical, but also live forever and also be in God's presence and also see God um, and also be like the Elohim, right? The stuff that God has made so that we can fully experience his love and grace and presence. Uh, and Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians in a beautiful way. Um, but that's not just a when we die promise. 
Right? So right now, Jesus invites us to begin living in that new humanity, to begin living like we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so what does it look like for us right now to start saying, hey, I want to be as much as I can a new creation, uh, a being that's not just physical. Right? Uh, I, I love the language of First Peter where he says, you know, you are now a chosen race, a holy nation, a, whole, a royal priesthood, um, God's own people caught out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Right? Um, so now we're this new thing. Uh, by the way, um, the end of this is better than the beginning. Right? The end of this is not we're back in the Garden of Eden walking with God, right? but we're back in the presence of God and he's living inside us, right? that we are little Christs. That's what Christian means, little Christs. Um, but right now, we don't have that. Right, right now, um, we're little Christs, but we don't, we don't have the fullness of that spiritual body or, or the ability to see God. So what do we do now um, as sort of the outpost of the kingdom of God on earth? Well, um, I think uh, we have to share in Christ's work, which means to oppose and depose the powers of darkness. So part of what it means to be the new humanity already is that we are working at the same stuff that Jesus was working at, right? We're working at overthrowing darkness and evil in our world. By the way, Jesus asked the disciples to do this before his resurrection, right? So lots of places. Um, we, we've mentioned some of these before, but in uh, Matthew chapter 6, we get the, the Lord's Prayer, right? And it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or really the, the evil one is what it says, right? So we're saying pray against Satan. Um, we're told in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, uh, that Jesus gave the apostles power over unclean spirits to cast them out, right? And he told them, go and heal people and cast out demons in my name. Um, we, we have a, a great passage in Matthew chapter 17, we'll probably come back to later, where uh, Jesus goes on the mountain for the transfiguration. He comes down and he discovers while he was gone that this father brought his son to the disciples to be healed. And the disciples couldn't cast this demon out. And Jesus is annoyed with them. Why is he annoyed with them? Because they should have been able to do it, right? Because he expected them to be able to do it. And he even says, you have little faith. Like, how long do I have to put up with this nonsense, right? Cast the demons out. So, so Jesus thinks, even before his resurrection, that we can be involved in this work. Even before our resurrection, we can be involved in this work of pushing back evil in our world. Um, after the resurrection of Jesus, by the way, um, this becomes even more clear. So um, I think most, most famously, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is on a mountain in Galilee, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? All authority in heaven and earth means there was a point where the spiritual forces of evil and the earthly people who weren't willing to obey God thought maybe they might win. That ship has sailed, right? I have won. I have all the authority now. And then what's the very next thing he says? Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Have some of my authority and, and go do the stuff that I was doing, right? It's all mine now, but you take some of it and you take some of it and you go out and do my stuff, do my work, spread my message, build my kingdom. Uh, Paul says this, I think, very clearly and explicitly in a passage in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, where we often talk about the armor of God, um, but the, the purpose of that armor 
um, is to defend us against the enemy of God. So Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Doesn't get a lot more clear than that, right? Um, so Paul's saying, and Jesus is saying, um, you know, take it to them, right? It's time for you Christians to go out there and push back the darkness as Jesus pushed back the darkness. Okay, um, so uh, I want to talk about how we're going to do that. Um, are, are we together? Do we need to pause for a minute? Making sense? Questions, comments? It seems like a big order. Yes, it does. Yeah. Thankfully, it's not just your job or just my job or just, wait, there's a lot of people working on this, but yeah, it's a big order. Made, made all the more so significant if we're not doing it on purpose. Yeah. 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 Is that the idea of righteous indignation? Absolutely. Right. Uh, that you know, Jesus gets angry multiple times in scripture, right? He doesn't get angry because he stubs his toe. He gets angry when he sees evil, right? And he does not leave it alone. And he does whatever he has to do to get that evil out, right? Now, whether it's kicking him out of the temple or kicking the demons out of the people or whatever it is. Yeah. So we, we should not see evil in our world and be blasé about it. Okay. Um, so I want to talk for um, the rest of our evening about like how we do this, right? How we as the new humanity, even though we're not resurrected yet, how we go about trying to carry on the work of Jesus and push back darkness in our world. Um, so uh, just some big ideas for us as we think about this, and we're going to get into some specifics as well. Um, if it's true for Jesus and the early disciples, it will be true for us. So what I mean by that is, if Jesus and his ministry met with um, human and spiritual opposition, then, and if the apostles and their ministry met with human and spiritual opposition, then if we are about spreading the love of God and the message of Jesus Christ, we will meet with human and spiritual opposition, right? It's just a given. You should expect it. Don't be surprised when it happens. Jesus told you it was coming, okay? Uh, so uh, it's not to be afraid of. It's just to be aware of. We, we're, it's going to happen. Uh, knowing that, and we've said this many times throughout this class, I think it's critical that we neither under nor over focus on the spiritual world. We can under focus on the spiritual world and just imagine that everything is materialistic and you know, there's nothing going on beyond the physical. And that's a mistake, right? And it's going to unequip us for the work before us. We can also over focus on this stuff and start making lists of demons and angels and ranks and freaking out about that all the time. And that's not helpful either, right? Jesus never asked us to obsess about this. Um, having a healthy balance of saying, hey, I am aware of the spiritual components of my ministry as a Christian, um, but it's not like all I think about, right? Really critical for us. Uh, conflict in the spiritual world is gonna be waged in the name of Jesus. And, and what I mean by in the name of Jesus is not that at the end of my prayer, I say in the name of Jesus, amen. Um, I mean, it's in the authority of Jesus, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He's given some of it to you, right? So if you are um, engaged in bringing light and grace and hope into the world, you're only going to be successful when you're doing it in the authority of Jesus, 
right? If you do it on your own strength, if you do it on somebody else's strength, it's not going to work, especially on the spiritual level that we're talking about, right? So we have to be intentional about saying, how am I um, growing Christ in my life, right? How am I um, in the word and in prayer and in worship and serving the poor and doing all the things that Christ calls me to do so that his influence and his character and his presence grows in me so that when I go to oppose evil in the world, it's not just Jim doing it, right? But it's Christ in me. That's the hope of glory, okay? Um, and then because we cannot see the spiritual world with the same clarity that Jesus sees the spiritual world, um, we're going to engage on the spiritual level and these cycles of discernment and response, okay? And we'll talk about this in a minute, but the, the big idea here is Jesus could walk into a room and see, okay, yep, I see the spirits here, and I see the people here. I know everything that's going on in the hearts of the people, and everything going on in the hearts of the spirits, and I know all the answers. None of you can do that, right? And neither can I. Um, so um, whenever we're going to deal with spiritual conflict, we're going to have to have some discernment, and it could be a long period of discernment to figure out what is going on here, Lord, what do you want me to do, okay? Uh, and then, of course, we're going to do something. There's going to be a response. We're going to talk about that. Uh, and then uh, last but not least on this big level, um, spiritual conflict comes both in the level of systems and the level of individuals, right? So we see this throughout scripture. We see, you know, in the, the prophet Daniel, um, there are kingdoms, empires represented by these monstrous beasts, right? Four beasts that rise. Um, there's a leopard and a bear and a weird looking elephant. And, um, and then finally, Jesus comes, right? One like the son of man, who destroys the beast and establishes the kingdom of God. Those beasts are evil spiritual powers that are ruling over these evil empires, right? So um, yeah, there are systems of evil that God's gonna call us to oppose. And then we also see that there are individuals who are afflicted by evil that God's gonna call us to oppose, right? And um, we have all the demon possessions in the New Testament, for example, right? As, as the systems and the individuals. So we're gonna talk about both of those as well, okay? Um, so, uh, I, I want to talk, I want to begin, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I want to begin by talking about the discernment piece, okay, and, and how we engage on a spiritual level and thinking about um, this, this ongoing work of Jesus, um, and, and just some general ideas that are important for all of us, and then we're going to get into the systems and the individuals separately, okay? So um, some big ideas about sort of spiritual discernment in this regard. I know this probably sounds um, dumb or obvious, like duh, um, but it's not obvious. So the first thing is we got to pray for God's will, right? When, when Jesus taught us how to pray, that's how he taught us how to pray, right? Um, Thy will be done. Or when, when Christ is at his lowest point in his life, that's the prayer he prays, right? Not my will, but your will be done. That this cup cannot pass from me. So um, when we are trying to figure out what God wants, we got to begin by saying, hey, God, I want what you want. You tell me, I'll do it. And then we have to say, Holy Spirit, I, I need you to help me figure this out. I, I don't have the answers. And it's not about Jim Gates being smart, right? Holy Spirit, please come and give me guidance. And that might be a prayer you pray, well, it should be a prayer you pray every day. Um, but it might be a prayer you pray about particular topics a lot. God, I need guidance on this because I'm not sure what your will is. And I really want to do your will. Um, and one of the ways we discern is we discern with others, right? So, um, you know, surely I'm really struggling with this 
question about what God wants and, and what's right and what's wrong. And, and is this something evil we need to oppose? Will you help me think about this and pray about this? And will you be in prayer about it too? And I want to hear what the Holy Spirit says to you and what he says to me, right? This is fundamental to being Presbyterian. We love this stuff. Um, so um, pray for God's will, ask for the Spirit's guidance, discern with others. No brainers, but really important, okay? Um, I am very uncomfortable with somebody who comes to me and says, hey, Jim, um, I know what God wants us to do, and I've talked to no one else about it. Well, uh, how do you know it's what God wants us to do? Or maybe it's what you want us to do. I love it when people come to me and say, hey, Jim, I think God might want us to do this. Will you pray about it too and see if, if you think it? And let's ask some other people and we'll all, yes, let's do it. I'll pray about it. I don't know if it's what God wants, but I'm really excited to find out. Okay. All right. Um, uh, just in general, we have to avoid sort of the false physical and spiritual distinctions. Um, what, what I mean by this is, yes, there are times in scripture where something happens and it seems to be all spiritual or all physical, right? So we're not told that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there's any spiritual forces he's opposing, though, of course, death is opposed to God. Um, uh, when the demon gets cast out from the guy in the, who's in the tombs in the region of the Gerardines, the Gerasenes, and the demons go into the pigs, we're not told that the guy had mental illness, right? We're just told that it's a demon. But in general, a lot of the message of scripture has been that the spiritual things and the physical things kind of come together more often than we realize, right? In the garden and before the flood and at the Tower of Babel, we all have these examples of the physical and the spiritual happening concurrently. So I think sometimes we can make a false distinction and we can say, oh, um, that person's demon-possessed and that person's mentally ill. Well, I mean, those things aren't necessarily unrelated, right? Um, or we might say, boy, um, you know, Satan caused that problem, but the Nazis are guilty for that problem. Well, maybe, but maybe Satan was working um, to, to bring about some of that evil in our world, right? So, so I think part of the reality for us as Christians is to say, hey, there may be a spiritual and physical dimension to a lot of the evil in our world. And to recognize and say, I don't have to pick one. You know, I don't have to say, don't go to a counselor, let's do an exorcism, right? No, go to a counselor, right? But we can also pray, let's do both, right? okay? Um, and then we have to distinguish between our enemies, um, the victims, and those who are victim and villain. So we just read in, in Ephesians, right, that our enemies are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the cosmic forces of, in this present darkness. Right? See, the only thing or people that I'm trying to beat and destroy and, and you know, demolish it, are, are them, right? are, are the spiritual forces of evil. There are a lot of people that are just victims, right? just victims of evil, right? And we, that just, I think, is intuitive to us. But then there are those folks that are kind of in that in-between stage, right? That maybe willingly or unwillingly, they're kind of cooperating with evil, right? And, you know, you can think of the really dramatic examples. There was a guy today who shot eight people um, in California. And, um, you know, it sure seems like willingly or unwillingly, he was a villain today. And so the tension that we have as Christians is to say, um, he's a villain and he's a victim. 
right? He's both. We're not belittling the significance of his sin, but neither was Jesus when he died for him, right? Jesus still thought that he and I and you and everybody were worth dying for because um, we are still victims of the temptation of the enemy, right? And there's some hope that we can be all of us somehow redeemed. So this is really critical for us, right? As we're approaching evil, uh, I don't have to say everybody's basically good. No, we're not. We all have sin, right? But I do need to say everybody is viewed by Jesus as eternally valuable, as in the image of God, and is uh, at worst, um, at least partly a victim, right? And, and deserves to be reclaimed. I'm not trying to defeat those people that are villains and victims. I'm trying to defeat the enemies. I'm trying to redeem the villain victim people just like I'm trying to redeem the victim people. Does that make sense? Um, it really changes how I think about evil in the world. doesn't mean that I'm going to go be best friends with Kim Jong-un, or uh, that's not going to happen, right? Um, but on some level, yeah, I do pray that not only would his evil end, but that he would confess and repent and become a follower of Jesus, right? That would be the ultimate victory. Okay. Are, are we together? So far, so good? Okay. Okay. Uh, all right, I want to talk a little bit about discernment um, and those two areas I mentioned, right? About systemic evil and about individual evil. And um, I know I'm not going to spend nearly the time any of this deserves, but I just want to just brush over it and just, just so it's been mentioned to you, okay? So as I think about um, the, the spiritual evil that happens on the systemic level, like, you know, nations and... Um, systems of oppression like slavery and that sort of thing. Um, I want to begin by remembering the job of the adversary, right? So um, he is the accuser. He is the tempter. He is the liar. He is the slanderer. Satan's job from the very beginning has been to confuse us about what's true, right? And get us to believe things that are not true. What that means for me in a very simple level when it comes to thinking about um, the complexity of our world and the systems of evil that are out there is um, because Satan's trying to trick us all, I might be wrong, right? And I got to approach almost every system in this world and say, hey, you know what? I have always thought X, Y, or Z. Um, from the very beginning, um, I always thought that, um, I don't know, nuclear weapons were bad, right? But I might be wrong, right? Because the, the whole goal of the enemy is to confuse me about what's right and wrong in the world. I've always thought that, you know, racism ended in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, but I might be wrong, right? Yeah, I don't think that, but, um, and, and, and just saying I might be wrong, I'm not saying I might be wrong about Jesus being savior, right? Talking about systems in our world and what's evil and what's not and how we respond. Just saying I might be wrong frees me up a lot. All of a sudden, it's no longer, I've always thought this, it's always been true, we got to go with my way. And it becomes, God, what, what should I think? Right? What, what, is, what do you think about this, God? Because I've always thought this, but I, I could be wrong. Um, so uh, then I think we got to ask, as I think about these systems in our world, why do I believe what I believe? Do I believe it because I always have? Do I believe it because my parents told me it was true? Um, or is, or is my belief about what's right and wrong and these systemic things rooted in Scripture? And I want to say particularly rooted in a Jesus-centered reading of Scripture, because you can find one verse in the Bible that says just about anything, right? 
Um, so when I come to think about something uh, in, in my world, whether it's, you know, the, well, we had a year where we thought about masks a lot, right? There's a silly one. So um, I think about something like masks, right? Uh, what does a Jesus-centric reading of scripture say about this, right? Because I've heard people tell me that it's really evil um, that we, if you have to wear them because you're infringing on my freedoms, and I've heard it's really evil if you don't wear them because you're trying to kill other people, and, but, but what is it, right? How do I figure that out? Well, I got to say, um, what does a Jesus-centric reading of scripture lead me to believe? And I think the mask is a silly one, right? But there's a lot more important topics you could be asking that question about. Um, and then I want to say, um, and I, this is a really, this is one that gets me personally. Um, does my opinion or belief or choice about what's evil and what's not stem from my preference or result in my benefit? Right? Um, so do I like this because it's good for me? Um, one of my, one of the things that I, I, I um, push back against our culture on is re regarding sort of the, the freedom of, of sexuality in our culture. And our culture says, hey, sleep whatever you want and get married if you want, you know, just don't, don't get married if you don't want whatever you want to do. And, and I push back and say, yeah, I don't think that's the way that the Bible approaches sexuality. I think there are some guidance about marriage and these things. Um, but I recognize if I get rid of that guidance, it really benefits me a lot, right? I mean, it's great for me if I can say I don't have to be married, I can sleep with whoever I want and I can, I can try it out first. And, um, and the fact that it benefits me might be a red flag that I'm believing it for the wrong reasons, right? That it might be a system that I'm buying into um, that isn't a healthy system for me to buy into. Um, Jesus usually makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, so um, if I'm not completely uncomfortable, uh, maybe I need to read Jesus a little more. Um, and then one last thing on this issue of the systemic evil. Um, is there a more Christ-centered way of handling this topic or reframing this debate? Um, our, our culture has, our American culture has become convinced that every issue, every systemic issue, at least in our country and maybe in our world, can be divided into either conservative or liberal. Right? I think that's stupid. Um, and, and Jesus, by the way, never mentions either one of those words. Uh, and, and I think the, the complexity of all of the problems in our nation and our world is so much bigger than just conservative or liberal, right? And, and can I, as a Christian, reframe some of those conversations to say, you know, uh, how do we think about a topic like abortion or a topic like racism or a topic like whatever um, from a Christian perspective and not just from the, the, the nonsensical choices that our world wants to offer, right? Because those, those worldly choices may be part of that system that Christ is calling me to oppose, right? Uh, the adversary loves to divide us. I mean, the adversary loves to divide us. He wants to divide us from God. He wants to divide us from each other. Christ loves to bring us together, right? So if I'm looking at a system and it results in me constantly being divided from everybody, maybe I'd say, hey, this system itself is a problem. Right? Okay, um, so just big picture. I know we're going super fast. Big picture about how I look at systems and say, all right, Lord, um, where might evil be in this that I'm called to oppose, okay? Um, and... And now, if it's okay, can we good to keep going? Okay, we're, I'm gonna talk about individuals. This is a little bit different, okay? Um, and I'm particularly interested in, um, you know, the, the presence of spiritual evil in individuals, okay? And discerning how we, how we find that. Um, so I wanna begin by saying, not all problems are spiritual possession or oppression, 
right? So not everybody you disagree with is, is run by the enemy. Um, and we gotta be careful about that. Uh, and, and we have to assess, right? Uh, is there a spiritual component to what's going on with this person, right? And, and how significant is that spiritual component? Um, we, we've already talked about the fact that um, if you are a Christian, if Christ is in your life, you cannot be possessed, right? You can be oppressed, you cannot be possessed, right? Because Jesus is stronger than anybody else who wants to move in. And there's no room for, for the enemy in your life. Um, so oppression is, you know, the, some infliction of pain or suffering or sorrow could be physical or emotional or whatever in our life from the enemy. Possession is like what we see in scripture where, you know, I'm talking, but it's not me talking, right? Um, so we got to assess that. We also have to assess um, that that spiritual evil that sometimes affects individuals is not always on the people we expect, right? So when you're reading the story of Jesus in the region of the Gerasenes and you get to this guy who's naked and breaking chains with his hands and living amongst the tombs with all the pigs around and calling himself legion, you're like, yep, okay, I get it. That's the kind of person I think might be possessed by demon. We get other people in scripture that are not who you'd expect. Uh, for example, in, in uh, Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 21, Jesus is in a synagogue, and he's just preaching in the synagogue. And while he's preaching, one of the guys sitting there for synagogue um, starts screaming about how Jesus is the son of God. And the guy's got a demon, and Jesus cast it out. And everyone's like, that was amazing. Part of what they're amazed by is, that's not the sort of person that's supposed to be demon-possessed, right? We thought he was a good little Jew. Um, so you can't just assume that some people might be oppressed by the enemy and some people aren't, right? Um, so uh, some questions I ask when I think about um, the individual level of evil, um, is there a clear and dark spiritual connection? Uh, what I mean by this is, you know, is there something in this person's life that's connected to uh, a false religion or to the occult? or to something that is, you know, overtly spiritual in a non-godly way. Uh, easy example, in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and there are a lot of exorcisms he does in Ephesus. And we're told at the end of that story of his time in Ephesus that he's really effective, the gospel grows, and all these people come together, and they bring all these books of magic, and they burn them in the town square. And the books of magic are worth like a huge amount of money. And the point is, well, of course, there's going to be some demonic influence there, right? Because they're all in there trying to use supernatural powers that come from sources other than God, um, which that's what magic is, right? Uh, and so whether magic is real isn't the point. The point is they're trying to do it. And in trying to do it, they're talking to the wrong spiritual forces, right? And so not surprising that those spiritual forces are around. Uh, is there a visceral negative reaction to Jesus? So almost every single time a demon shows up um, where Jesus is, the demon freaks out, right? I mean, there's, there's never a time where a, a demon-possessed person calmly walks up to Jesus, right? Either they have convulsions and they fall to the ground, or they start screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, they don't like him. <laughs> they are scared of him. Uh, and so um, if there's someone in, in, in our lives who has that same incredibly visceral negative reaction to Jesus, that, that can be a sign that something spiritual is going on. Um, and then I, I just say, does the person personally experience a sense of darkness or oppression, right? Does somebody say, boy, I just feel um, like there's this 
this thing dragging my life down. Um, this isn't a science, but those are all things that I think about when somebody says, hey, is there something spiritual going on with this individual? Those might be some things I'd ask, right? Well, as we try to discern what God's doing. Okay. Um, oh, gosh. Okay, I'm going to do this real quick, then I'm going to pause. So what do we do in response? By the way, I got to tell you, um, the kids are going long tonight. And so Amanda told me I could go long tonight. I just wanted you to know that. All right. Um, so... Uh, We've done some discernment. We've tried to decide, Lord, what do you want me to do in this? Is there evil in this that needs to be opposed or not? Not everything has evil in it, right? Sometimes we just have differences of opinion. Is there evil in this that needs to be opposed? Then there's got to be some kind of response. Um, the, the first response is, is literally the act of being the church. So um, on a collective and individual level, uh, you have all been through a kind of exorcism. Um, when you join the church or when you are baptized, we ask you, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? And do you renounce sin in your life and in the world? That question, do you renounce sin in your life and in the world, has been called the exorcism question, right? It's saying, do you want sin out of you? Do you want Satan out of you, right? And the answer is, heck yeah, I do, right? Um, so not only do you have that going for you, but we also have this community of people who have all said, we want to be a place where spiritual evil can't be, right? Where God's love and grace are, are so filling our hearts and our lives, there's no room for the evils of the enemy, right? That's pretty incredible, right? It, it makes the church this um, incredible body that really can do some of the extraordinary difficult things that you were talking about, Shirley. It, it sounds daunting, um, but I'm not sure it's not Satan that's daunted, right? Because he's got, he's got a heck of an enemy in the church. Uh, uh, then, obviously, we've already said this, you've got to invoke the Holy Spirit, right? You've got to say, Holy Spirit, I want you to come fill me up. I need more of you in my life. I want to go in the direction you want me to go and do what you want me to do. Come fill me up. And you've got to be prepared. Um, and, and this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, which we read some of, talks about putting on the armor of God. And the point of that is, if I'm going to confront evil in the world, um, I don't want to do it for the first time um, in, in a big moment, right? If you're going to, if you're going to do a, a piano concert, you don't start playing the piano for the first time the day of the concert, right? Not a good idea. So if I want to say, hey, there's systemic and there's, and there's individual evil in the world that I want to help Christ defeat, um, I got to spend my whole life working on that, right? I'm going to exercise my spiritual muscles every day and, and think about trusting and hoping in Christ and living like Christ and studying Christ so that I'm ready to use those spiritual muscles when, when they're needed. Um, and then really simply, the, the Bible tells us um, three, maybe, maybe more, but three specific times to resist the devil, right? Uh, we hear it in James, we hear it in Peter, we hear it in Paul and Ephesians. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, what, what the heck does that mean, right? Uh, I, I think it's actually pretty simple. Uh, I don't think there's a complex part to this process. Uh, I think resisting the devil means two simple things. First, pray, right? Pray against the enemy. Pray against the systems of evil. You can pray against racism. Pray against the individual evil. You can pray against the, somebody that you think is being oppressed by uh, demonic forces. Um, pray for the victims of that systemic evil or the victim of that demonic force. Um, be specific 
uh, and be pointed, right? God, I want you to do this. I want you to push this evil back. Um, the, the story I mentioned earlier in Matthew shows up in Mark as well, where Jesus comes off the mountain, finds the disciples, they can't cast out the demon, and he does it effortlessly, and he's annoyed with them. And then in Mark, we get this great conversation. They go back to a, a, a house somewhere, and the disciples are like, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And, and what Jesus says, this kind comes out only by prayer. And the question is, what the heck were they doing? They were trying to cast out a demon and they weren't even praying? Like, what were they thinking? These guys are idiots, right? Um, prayer is how you push evil back, right? It is the way. You are not going to defeat spiritual evil in our world without prayer. You're not going to end racism without prayer, right? You're just not going to do it. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Um, it's not all you're going to do, but it's not going to work without it. You're not pushing evil out of somebody's heart without prayer. Not going to happen, right? This kind of comes out only by prayer. And then um, you got to follow Jesus like Jesus. And we already talked about this a little bit, but you, you got to follow Jesus. You got to do what Jesus wants you to do. You got to do it the way Jesus would do it, right? The way Jesus fought evil is the way we fight evil. Why did the civil rights movement work in our country? Yeah, because they fought like Jesus, right? They, fought, they followed Jesus. And he was at the, I mean, they were almost all Christian leaders. Um, uh, and, and they fought like Jesus, right? They said, hey, you know what? Nonviolence is the way. We're not going to take up arms against you. We're not going to try to um, beat you into submission. We're going to let you beat us. And that's how we're going to beat you, right? And it worked because that's the way Jesus works, right? So that you follow Jesus like Jesus. Um, whether that's an individual or whether that's a system, um, you pray and you follow Jesus like Jesus. It's it, pretty simple. That's what resisting the devil means, right? That's it. Um, please remember that when you're doing this, Jesus is your strength. Uh, it's not your wisdom. It's not your experience. It's not your background knowledge. It's just Jesus. Now, there's a great story in um, Acts chapter 19. We're all, we love Acts chapter 19 tonight. When they're in Ephesus, Paul's doing the exorcisms, and there's this group of Jewish exorcists um, that want to cast demons out too. And they're like, wow, Paul does it in a way we've never done it before. We want to do it like Paul. So these guys um, who are not Christians go up to some people that are apparently they're known to be possessed and they say, you know, in the name of Jesus, I cast you out. And the demons are like, we know Jesus. We know Paul. We don't have any idea who you guys are. And they beat the snot out of these Jewish exorcists, right? Who run away beaten and bruised and bleeding. Um, and and the, the point of that is Jesus isn't a magic spell, right? Like there's secret words we have to say to push evil back. You just got to love Jesus and, and, and have him in your heart, right? Uh, and, and, and so he's your strength. He's the one that's going to make this possible. Okay. Uh, and last but not least, um, we have this amazing community of people who have all said they want to be ruled in the kingdom of God and not by the kingdom of Satan. Use them, right? Use your church and enlist your church in the work of pushing evil back, right? Because that's why we're here. That's our purpose. All right, I got to stop talking for a minute. Um, questions or comments or thoughts about um, all that spiritual warfare stuff? Which do you think you have the tendency to recognize systemic or individual evil? The question is what do we have more of a tendency to recognize, systemic or individual evil? Um, 
I think we recognize systemic evil more, but we don't recognize the spiritual component of it. I think we have um, really bought into the sort of materialistic worldview for individuals and said, you know, the idea of a demon oppressing somebody is just so medieval, nobody believes that anymore. Um, and so I think we've lost that truth, um, even though we've gained a lot. I mean, we've gained a lot of knowledge about how the body works and the brain works. It's really helpful because there are physical causes, right? Um, but I, I think we struggle with all of it. I think the church maybe has a better hand, handle on it than the world does, but just the idea of, of naming evil evil is hard for us, right? We wanted to say, well, it's your opinion and my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions about all of that spiritual warfare stuff? Ooh, the question is, um, what's our biggest spiritual warfare in our country? Um, I actually think that's an easy one. I think that um, the, the overwhelming message of, the, um, of our culture is individuals rule, right? So you do whatever you wanna do, however you wanna do it. And the only thing I can do wrong is to tell you to stop, right? And, and by the way, I think that's conservatives and liberals. <laughs> we all have that mentality. Um, and it manifests particularly in religion, right? Where we say, well, you believe what you wanna believe and I'll believe what I wanna believe. The only thing you can do wrong is to tell me that what I believe is wrong. Um, and I think, you know, the, the idea of objective truth, like there is, there is a way to God and there is a way away from God and I wanna help you on the way to God is very unpopular in our culture today. Um, and I think there's a, that is a system um, that has been um, you know, laid upon us for human reasons and for spiritual reasons. Is that something like a culture canceling? So maybe, so, sorry, I'm sorry. The question is, is that what culture canceling is about? Um, I think the culture canceling thing is, is similar, but a little different. I mean, I think, first of all, I think that phrase gets used to mean different things to different people. But the idea of saying, um, I don't agree with you, therefore you shouldn't get to have an opinion um, is, is almost the inverse of what I'm saying. It's almost saying, hey, you know what? You're, you allowed individual freedom until, you're, until you bother my individual freedom, then your freedom goes away. Um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of problem, I think. Yeah, it's a different kind of problem. Yeah. Ooh, that's, ooh, that's, that deserves more conversation, but uh, other, other, Stephanie, other thoughts? Yes. The, the question is, is, uh, um, is discernment a spiritual gift? And I think the answer is it absolutely is. Um, and and, and I, I do believe there are some people that are, are more gifted at being able to sort of see um, God's guidance. Um, and I, I think biblically that's clear. I mean, look at the prophets. Um, but then I, I also think um, there are some folks that are maybe more gifted at trying to see the spiritual world though in a way that God might see it. We have to be careful, right? Because we, we still bring this wheel back into community and we say, let's affirm your gifts in community. Um, we don't want to make, you know, you be the, you're not going to be out here on the, on the mountain with all the answers. You're going to be one of us, 
but you might share that gift in the body and that might be really helpful for the body because um, maybe I don't have that gift as well. Yeah, absolutely. For this sort of that spiritual discernment? Um, you know, Yes. Yeah, the, the question is, um, how would someone know if they had a spiritual giftedness for discernment? Well, so first of all, I would say um, everything that you can have a spiritual gift for, you can do a little bit without a giftedness in it, right? If you're a believer. So for example, and you can have a spiritual gift of prophecy, but prophecy is speaking for God, not speaking the future. And so, you know, you can speak for God in somebody's life, even if that's not your special gift and you're incredibly gifted at it, right? Um, so in the same way, I think everybody has the ability to do some discernment, but I don't know that everybody can um, say they have the same level of ability at that. And so, yeah, I think like many things in life, it becomes, as I've tried to do this, as I've worked on this muscle, I've found that it comes easier to me, right? I'm, some people are really good at basketball and it just comes natural, right? They work hard on it, but they're always gonna be better than me no matter how hard I work on it. Same thing with spiritual gifts, I think. Yeah. There's so much ego involved. Yeah. Yeah. So much evil involved in. Oh. Oh, ego. Thank you. I misunderstood. Yeah, there is so much ego involved in all of that. Yeah, you're right. And 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 that's the hard part. That's why I'm saying you got to bring it back into the body, because any spiritual gift can result in an inflated opinion of yourself, right? And, and Paul writes about this in Corinthians. You know, he says, pursue the, the better gifts, but remember that the best gift is love for your neighbor and all the other stuff's gonna cease to exist at one point, but that's not. Um, so yeah, 100%, we have to be, we have to recognize that, this is the metaphor, right? That it's great to be an eye, but somebody's gotta be a little toe. And without the little toe, the whole body falls over. So I'd rather be the eye personally, but we need a little toe. I'm happy to be a little toe for me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, oh my gosh, I am going over. Uh, I, I want to say one thing more. Do I have a slide for this? I do. Um, I just want to do a brief thing about exorcisms, okay? Because it's a question that comes up a lot. Um, and um, the, the question is, can and should we perform exorcisms today? And the answer is yes, clearly yes, right? The next question is, is there a specific ritual or rite for exorcism we need to follow? The answer is no. Okay, uh, and, and here I will diverge from the Catholic Church significantly, but, but I would say the answer is no, right? There is no magic words or special spell you have to say. In fact, as soon as you start telling me I have to say these certain words in this certain order, it sounds more like magic than like faith, right? And so, yeah, absolutely, we can say I want to pray evil out of this person's life. Um, and absolutely, um, we can do that in, a, in an intentional way. But no, there's not like a certain way we have to do it, okay? And um, that I really don't uh, believe that. Um, so I do think there are some precautions we should do, right? If you're ever thinking, boy, somebody came to me and says they feel like they've, they need an exorcism or they, they have a demon or whatever, um, please don't just be like, okay, let's sit down and let's do it together right now. Let, let's take some precautions. Um, the first one is, again, community discernment, right? So if somebody comes to desire this problem, we bring it to the body and the body says, hey, you know, we, we, we think this needs to be done or it doesn't, right? This is a healthy thing for you. This is not a healthy thing for you. We agree with your discernment or we don't agree with your discernment. Uh, and then um, I hope this is obvious. 
but there needs to be medical and psychological evaluation, right? So there are physical causes and spiritual causes. So if somebody comes and says, hey, I think I'm demon possessed, I'm going to say, let's pray about it right now. Let's enlist some more people to pray about it. And in addition, let's make sure we get you checked out because there might be physical causes that could help this get better real fast, right? Maybe you have schizophrenia. We can get you a medication and this clears up, right? Um, and then, you know, if we ever get to the point where we say, no, we really need to do this in a serious way and it's more than just I'm praying on my own, community involvement, right? So it's not just Jim Gates and um, Shirley sitting down and Shirley's casting out the demon from Jim, right? We need to have some people involved. Um, again, there's not a magic spell. There's not a certain, we're not doing a seance. I'm not going to throw holy water on you. I'm going to pray like a normal set of prayers, right? Um, but I might ask other people to pray too and do it in a group. Um, I've never done an exorcism in that way. Um, I've never been asked to do one. I would say the closest I had is I, I have an experience where um, a, a member of a former church felt like there was a, a presence in their home not in their body, but in their home, that made them very uncomfortable. And so I and another pastor and this family got together and we went over to their house and we just prayed through everyone's house. We didn't do any weird prayers. We said, Jesus, thank you for giving this home. We pray that in this room, they would feel your love and grace all the time. And that any forces of evil that are opposed to you would never be allowed in because you were surrounded with a hedge of protection and only your Holy Spirit could reign in this room. And we went into the bedroom. We said, I don't know, something vaguely similar to that, right? Um, that's all we did. And as far as I know, that's all it took, right? And that person never came back and felt that presence again. Um, Jesus is stronger than the enemy, right? So it doesn't take a lot of hocus pocus. Um, Jesus is going to win every time he fights them. Um, we just got to make sure we let Jesus do the fighting. Okay. Um, I'm so past my time. All right. Um, uh, just, just stuff I think is important, right? Jesus is um, the main idea, right? He's the main idea for the physical world, for the spiritual world. Um, his death and resurrection is the defeat of the enemy, right? It's, it's the victory of God who moves us out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. Um, we're called to advance the work of Jesus, right? Continue to push back darkness. And I often, I love this verse in Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, um, you know, you are Peter, you are, his name is Simon, right? You are Peter, you are a rock. And um, I will take this rock and I will throw it to the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not overcome it, right? Um, that not hunker down so the devil can't get you, but break down the gates of hell and bring everybody out, right? We are on offense, not on defense. Uh, and then seeing the world as Jesus sees it is critical, right? So um, if I want to push back the systems of evil in our world or individual evil in our world, I got to recognize that there are physical and spiritual components to both. And I got to engage on both levels. Right? That's the way Jesus did. Okay. Um, boy, that's all I got to say about that. Uh, I know that was a lot. Uh, any last questions or comments before we, we close in prayer? I got a little wordy tonight, but Amanda told me it was okay. So, all right. I do whatever she says pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, she's one of many women in my life that tell me what to do. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, I just want to remind you that um, we are done with life for now, which is sad, but our adult vacation Bible school is in August. And so uh, I don't know what we're doing yet, but it's going to be great. 
And uh, what we normally do for adult VBS is it's just Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. And unlike this class, those nights aren't linear, right? So we'll just do something different each night. So if you miss one, because it's a random day of the night, you can't make, random night of the week, you can't make it, it's fine, come to the next one, right? You're not gonna miss out on anything. Um, so I hope you'll put that on your calendar. And certainly sometime in July, at the very latest, I will let you know what the heck we're gonna be doing. If you have requests, you can let me know. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, so um, yes, so I would assume next Wednesday, we'd be back um, for anyone who wants to join us. Um, we have a group that meets at 6 p.m. and does prayer. We've been meeting via Zoom. Um, we may need to do that. We may meet in person, whatever, but for sure, um, we'll email everybody who's been here. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you. That prayer group is usually like a half an hour, 45 minutes is not super long. And um, it's not it's not like high-level prayer, right? I don't think there's such a thing as high-level prayer. It's just regular people getting together and praying about stuff. So we'd love to have you join us for that, um, especially because this kind comes out only by prayer. So, okay, awesome. Let's close in prayer then. Lord Jesus, uh, we are so incredibly grateful that uh, in your life and death and resurrection, you have fulfilled the vision of your Father and um, created the kingdom of God, this place where we as humans can live both in um, our human world and um, in the spiritual world um, uh, of our God. And we pray, Lord, that even though we aren't fully there yet, um, that as, as people who at least have, um, have a hand in each one of those worlds, you would allow us to carry on your work here you would allow us to advance your kingdom and push back the kingdom of darkness. We know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And we pray, Lord, you'd give us discernment to see where in our world there is evil that you are calling us to oppose. And we pray, Lord, you'd give us courage to stand up for Christ and to resist the devil in those moments and trust that he will flee from us because we come not in our own strength, but in the name and in the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. And so it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good evening. Thanks for being part of this last four weeks. It's been a lot of fun for me.